the first of the eight meditative absorptions. When I was describing the five factors of meditation versus the five hindrances, that's the very first chamber of the mansion that has eight rooms. And although you may at this point in time not actualize these um, absorptions, these states of mind, who knows, you might continue your meditation after we leave this course and may be able to actualize them then. It will be of great help to you if you know what they consist of. It is hard to, very hard, very difficult to get that kind of information out of a book, although it exists in books. It isn't so easy to understand it if one hasn't done it. So it is much easier to understand if one is told what it is. And some of you may be able to actualize it while you're here. So again, it will be a help to you. People are often um, questioning whether they then have a state of expectation. The answer is yes, of course. You have a state of expectation all the time. Whether I tell you about this or not makes no difference at all. You're expecting to become peaceful and happy and uh, that the meditation is going to bring you a real wonderful feeling. So these expectations are there. Whether I'm going to explain this to you or not will not change that. On the contrary, if I tell you that expectation breeds disappointment and if you remember that sentence, you may be able to drop expectations as a matter of practice. Expectations not only about your meditation, expectations about other people, expectations about yourself, expectations about perfection, all sorts of expectations. If you know and can actually find this out in yourself, that all expectations breed disappointments, you may be able to drop, not maybe all of them, but some of them. And then every time you have a new disappointment, you can find out very easily that it's due to a new expectation. Because it cannot arise in any other way. So this, of course, holds true here. An expectation also has a very detrimental effect upon oneself in the way that it actually substitutes for making the effort. Because if one makes the effort, one is doing it. If one is expecting something, one is thinking it. And that difference is probably the biggest difference between gaining access to different states of consciousness or just thinking about it. So if one really wants to do something, the effort is what counts. And while we're making effort, 
expectation has absolutely no place in it because the two things just do not go together. We only can do one thing at a time. We're very lucky that way, that our mind is so constituted that it can actually become one-pointed, that it can do one thing at a time, that it doesn't have to rummage around amongst the many possibilities. On the other hand, we have the misfortune that our mind has untold, innumerable possibilities. We can never come to the end of them. But we have the option of dropping them and come to the one-pointedness. The meditative absorptions are divided into two parts, rupa and arupa. Rupa means body or materiality, corporality, and a, the syllable a, means non. It's the same syllable actually used in English quite often. Now, of course, the first four being called rupa janas does not mean that they are physical. But what it means in English, we translate that as fine material meditative absorptions. Long, complicated words. In Pali, rupa, jhanas. Easier. However, we can understand this quite easily by recognizing that these first four have equal experiences in our ordinary life, although neither quantitatively or qualitatively of the same dimension. We all know, and if you remember what I told you about the very first one, what it's like to have pleasant physical sensations. We've had them, and we will have them again. We all know what it means to be happy. We know what it means to be contented and peaceful. The big difference, the one essential difference, the one that makes the jhanas a totally new and different experience is the fact that they have no outside conditions. We don't have to get anything through our senses, see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think anything, we don't have to do anything. We are totally independent if we can concentrate. This is the essential difference. And independence means freedom. Without independence, there's no freedom. As long as we are dependent upon so many things that most people are, not only of a material nature, but, because this body does need material support, but also of an emotional nature. So long we are slaves to that dependency. We have a dependency very often upon the fact that we want to be liked. It's um, very damaging for our own honest appraisal 
doesn't mean that we should be disliked. It means that we do what we do and think and say what we consider correct for the simple reason that we find it either correct or helpful, but not for the sake of being liked. It's a fine line, and without wanting to be liked, we have gained a measure of independence. It is something we need to find out in our own introspection and contemplation. We also have a dependency when we need to be very careful about our own aims and pathways because other people may not like them. In other words, we depend upon what are called the eight worldly conditions, and they are praise and blame, loss and gain, happiness and unhappiness, fame and ill fame. And our dependency goes so far that we would like to have the four that are positive and are shunning the four that are negative. So we are in a state of fear about getting one of the four that are negative and a state of anticipation, expectation, and hope that we're going to get the four that are positive. This expectation, this dependency, makes us unfree, gives us a sense of being cornered, limited, not being able to expand to uh, the dimensions that we may actually feel within ourselves are possible. Sometimes people know that their potential is not being realized. Well, we are putting on our own limitations through those eight worldly conditions. They're called the eight worldly dhammas. In this case, the word dhamma is spelled with a small t, in, uh, sorry, small d, because it is necessary to distinguish it between the word dhamma, which means the teaching, which is always spelled with a uh, capital D. The word dhamma with a small d means phenomena, and it means all phenomena. So, we could say the eight worldly phenomena or the eight worldly conditions either way. Possibly phenomena might be even more correct. In Pali we have words which have many different meanings. And uh, we have the same thing in English. Uh, for instance, the word train, it has many meanings. And the uh, word ceiling, if you look in a dictionary, you will find that one word can be used in many different ways. Well, we have the same problem in Pali. So we are, have um, possibilities of translation which are not always the same. These eight worldly conditions under which everybody operates with hope and despair, 
with elation and depression, certainly get of lesser importance and lesser impact if we have found a way of being independent for our own happiness. And that independence for our own happiness can only be found if heart and mind come to a state of rest, a state of equilibrium where all this churning around which concerns the outward worldly conditions is stopped for a while. And when it starts again, it is seen for what it is. Nothing but a habit, a habit of attaching itself to the movie which is being played constantly. It's an uninterrupted performance. It goes on all the time. And this uninterrupted performance has so many features which appear to be interesting, but far more important than that, necessary. That's got to be done, got to be known. And because of that mistaken view, we forget that we're watching a performance and again and again fall into the error of attaching ourselves to these eight worldly phenomena. There is no way that we can actualize this rest and peace within without the meditative process of calm and insight. Complete insight will obviously bring that inner calm. But to get to complete insight, we need a handle. We need something that we can do. And because it is extremely difficult, that's putting it mildly, to get to complete insight. Our pathway through the meditative absorptions gives us a step-by-step relief and release, which on every level of ability and skill grows and has its own reward. The first four jhanas are strictly tranquility. The next three are based on tranquility but bring automatic insights. Insights which can be intellectually understood but will have no impact on the mind unless they are experienced. Our experience is our life. Our understanding of the experience is wisdom. Unless we have the understood experience, it will be useless to us. I'd like to compare that to a small child putting its hand on a hot stove and yelling with pain, having no idea because it's too small and nobody there to tell him, having no idea that the pain was occasioned by putting the hand on the stove. So it does it again and again and screams again and again. 
until it finally either realizes what the cause of this pain is, has the understood experience, or somebody comes around and says, it's a stove. <coughs> if we don't understand our experiences, we're going to be burned over and over again. And I don't think there's anybody alive, at least I haven't met up with them, who hasn't had the same unfortunate experiences more than once. We fall into the same errors. Naturally so, because we haven't understood the cause. The cause, of course, lying within ourselves. Sometimes, after we've done the same rather unfortunate thing two, three, or four, or five times, we finally wake up that this has happened so many times before there must be a pattern. And we might be able to find the pattern. Sometimes we can't even do that. So the experience is life, the understanding of the experience is wisdom. Life without wisdom is extremely difficult. Life even with wisdom is difficult, but without it, it is a real chore. When we are able to use our meditation for one-pointed concentration, we have a means, a tool, which changes our whole inner makeup, and changes our whole inner perception. And it changes also the attachment to the eight worldly phenomena to one of eventually letting go of them in the immediate instance, probably understanding how damaging our attachment to them is. If you remember, the first meditative absorption brings with it five factors, initial application, sustained application, PT, which is rapture, bliss, uh, very extremely pleasant feeling, happiness, and one-pointedness. Obviously, we're not meditating in order to have pleasant feelings. But they are a beginning. They're putting our foot in the door, where we actually become aware of the fact that we're carrying everything within. Everything we've ever looked for is already there, we just didn't know exactly where to look. Now that is a great discovery. It's an, a pioneer exploration that everybody has to do for him or herself. I can talk about it, but that doesn't bring it about. We usually compare that to biting into the mango. If you've never eaten a mango and you ask a friend, what's it taste like? The friend says, it's very delicious. It's sweet, it's soft, it's juicy. Well, couldn't that be also a peach? It doesn't have to be a mango. So after you've heard that, you might be interested in biting into this mango. And having done so, you know what a mango tastes like. It's your own experience. And since you were already told that the thing is called a mango, you've got an understood experience 
you don't think it's a better kind of a peach. You know what it is. So here we have this opportunity through becoming one-pointed, and it does take effort, and it takes time, and it takes determination. And the last one is probably the most important factor. Without determination, nothing really happens. The determination is what keeps one on the pillow, particularly when one has this opportunity. And I'd like to, at this point, suggest to you that you use all available time for trying to become one-pointed with whatever means you're using any of the concentration methods which we have done are conducive to that. And if in the evening you should not be tired, sit longer. This is an opportunity to come to a state of mind which to most people is unknown, that they haven't even heard about, never mind done it. Most people are those, including those that have never meditated, but also including those that have. Now, in order to proceed into this mansion and not just get stuck in the first antechamber, one has to drop certain things. As usual, it's a matter of letting go. Well, the first thing that we drop is, of course, the initial application, because that we've done already. And we can also, if we're well concentrated, drop the sustained application, which means trying to stay on the meditation subject because that is already happening. Our mind is already in the flow of concentration. So we've dropped the first two. The other three remain. However, the changeover from the first chamber to the second one is that we realize quite clearly in the mind that pleasant physical, physical sensations are gross and that pleasant emotional sensations are more subtle. So our full attention on the pleasant physical sensation goes away and changes over to the attention on the emotional sensation, which is happiness. Now, the pleasant physical sensation remains in the background, but our full attention is given to happiness. As we do this, in the first flush of excitement, it is actually possible that the happiness is so strong that tears might come. That's fine, usually happens only once. One gets used to anything, even to happiness. This particular uh, level of uh, meditation has a very important result. Buddha said that this brings self-confidence. 
Self-confidence is a very strange commodity. Everybody would like it. Very few people have it. And most people don't like it when they see it in somebody else. It's an ever-recurring problem. There's nothing one can do about it. Once one has gained access to inner happiness without outer causes, there is no reason not to have confidence. One feels clear, at ease, secure, and safe. Nobody can take it away. It is not possible to steal it, to burn it, to have to pay for it, to be to lose it. The only way we lose it is, of course, if we don't practice meditation. It's highly unlikely that anyone who has gained this jewel will stop practicing meditation. They might for a day or two when the circumstances don't allow, but it is not likely that they will stop completely. That's the only way we can lose it. So there is no reason to not be confident, at ease, feeling safe and secure. Now, safety and security is something that everybody is looking for. The largest buildings in any city proclaim it. They're usually the insurance companies. Everybody would like to be. We would like to have security and safety in our lives, but there's no other place to find it except in our own hearts. So we have this opportunity to get it through the second step, through the second step of the meditative absorptions. And sometimes, interestingly enough, people find it very difficult to actualize this inner happiness. And because the mind is already very peaceful, pass by it and go to the next one. And only when it's pointed out to them, now this is an experience of, you know, in meditation courses, when it's pointed out to them that they have missed that one, they recognize the fact that they didn't know what happiness actually meant. And they have to go back and try again. It's a very sad state in a human life. Because inner happiness should be something that we are very familiar with, whether we meditate or not. Because our inner happiness is a state of being where we have absolutely no negativity, no fear, no anxiety, no worry, no dislike, no rejection, no future, no past, the present moment only. And this can be achieved in daily living, and many people are aware of it and are familiar with it, through sense contact. So we depend upon sense contact at the time. For instance, one sees a very beautiful sunset, and one actually becomes happy in within. And then the sunset goes away, the happiness goes away too slowly, and then one is under the impression that it was due to the sunset. So one goes and looks at all possible sunsets. Or it might be happening at the ocean. One's watching the waves 
and happiness arises. And so one thinks it's due to the ocean. So one likes to sit at the ocean. And it also has a possibility of working over and over again, but it's not due to the sunset, nor is it due to the ocean, nor is it due to any outer condition. It's due to the condition within which has let go of thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's, what happened yesterday, how we dislike this and would like to keep that. It's we stopped for a moment and were totally absorbed in the sense contact. Absorption, that's all. And that's how it happened. But because the sense contact is short, it has to be. Our eyes can't handle it otherwise the sense contact has to be, is, the happiness is only short, and we have to renew it. We have to go out of our way to get the same kind of sense contact again, which will make us absorbed. Here we have the opportunity to just sit and remain absorbed as long as we can manage. If we like to do it for a day or two, that's fine, if we can do it. If we want to do it for an hour or two, that's fine. If we don't to do it for a minute or two, that's all right too. Whatever we can handle, however much, much one-pointed we are, because that's the third factor which remains with us, the pleasant feeling, the happiness, and the one-pointedness. Now, here we have then the personal proof of the experience that it isn't out there. It's all happening in here. All the truths that have ever existed are all lodged in here. We just can't get at them. We can if we let go of all the other stuff that's in there. So we come to the second step. It's just called second jhana. That's all it has as a name. And it is the experience of inner happiness. Now that kind of happiness, sometimes, as I said, it's very strong, particularly in the beginning. But it then settles down to a feeling difficult to say the feeling which is even it's joyful but it's an even joy it's not being exhilarated or elated that can happen the first or second time but that drops away. Exhilaration and elation drops away. And it is more an inner feeling of everything is all right within me. Happy, joyful. It is certainly stronger than the inner happiness which arises from watching a sunset. But it is related. It is akin to it. Again, the mind recognizes the fact 
that we didn't come here to meditate to become happy, although it's very nice to be happy. But we would like more. Any intelligent mind knows that. The Buddha took it for granted. The Buddha never mentioned that one could become attached to that. It's never once mentioned in any of his discourses. He took it for granted that an intelligent person would recognize the fact that this can't be all there is to it. He says that, not in those words, but in his way of expressing himself. One realizes that this is still gross and that there must be something finer. And so, one lets go, one is still one-pointed and concentrated, and one lets go of the pleasant sensation, physical, and the happy inner feeling, emotional, and the mind comes to rest. It feels contented because it got what it wanted. It wanted to get some happiness, so now it's got it, so it's contented. It's peaceful, and it is wishless. It doesn't have wishes at that time. Now, mind you, all the other things do arise again once one gets out of meditation. But one has gained a foothold and has seen a light at the end of the tunnel. And one is going to follow that light, undoubtedly. So, the contentment is wishless. And coming out of that, the mind knows for a fact that being wishless is the only way to get rid of all dukkha. One has, in other words, being able to prove the first noble truth. In his enlightenment experience, when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree in what is today Bodh Gaya, he went from the first jhana to the eighth and back down to the first and then formulated his enlightenment understanding so that we also could partake of that in times to come. Although he wasn't quite sure at the time yet that he was going to teach, he certainly formulated this experience and he formulated it into the Four Noble Truths of which are the hub and the uh, kernel of the whole of the teaching, the hub of the wheel of the Dhamma. And the first noble truth says that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness. And the second one says there's only one cause for that, one single cause, and that's craving, wanting. Here we have an opportunity to prove it to ourselves that this is true. In the third jhana, we are wishless, automatically, because we got what we wanted, we're at peace. Coming out of it, we can see this clearly. And then we have the understood experience. If we just have the experience, it's nice too. But that's not enough. We must also use our understanding. And it's very simple, because it is our own experience. We are biting into the mango. It's our own mango. We have tasted it. We know what it tastes like. 
we didn't have a single wish. We were totally contented and therefore no pain, no worry, no fear, nothing. Just peace. And having come to that state for the first time, the mind may actually say, this is great. And of course that finishes the meditation. (laughs) That happens, of course, in all three of them, wherever one gets to. In the beginning, at the first time, you know, the mind saying, you know, wonderful. How did I do this? Great. <laughs> but then, having doing it again, the mind does get used to this. It accepts it after a while as the ordinary way of meditating, the pathway, and also as the ordinary way of being, and starts to forget that one wasn't always like that. until something really dreadful happens and one becomes angry, upset and answers back and then all of a sudden it is all back again. By that I would like to emphasize that although the jhanas bring great states of an elevated consciousness are a necessary pathway, they do not bring the total purification. They only work at cutting the weeds down. They do not uproot them. Anyone who does the jhanas can still get upset and angry. In order to eliminate that, we need insight. That's why all of these states, as we come out of them, can be used, need to be used, for understanding something about ourselves. Now, the first thing, if you get to the first one, the pleasant feeling, or the second one, the happiness, or the third one, the peacefulness, doesn't matter whichever one you get to, or even just to a good state of meditation, it doesn't matter. The uh, last thing, before you open your eyes, are two very important Remembrances. I've mentioned them before, but because they're so important, I want to mention them again so you don't forget. The first thing is to look at the dissolution of the good state, which means you have a personal experience of impermanence. It's a very important thing to do because of the our nature of trying to overlook impermanence. We're constantly denying it, not verbally. We're not saying, no, it doesn't exist. We're denying it by pushing all awareness of it away. We don't want to know about it. Even people who work with terminally ill people and watching death all the time, very frequently try to forget about their own death. They don't want to know it. It's unpleasant, they think. In actual fact, it's nothing of the sort. But we must make a very concerted effort not to overlook impermanence. Because the more we see it clearly, the easier it is for us not to 
be upset and react to what's happening, either, either within or without. It's all impermanent. It doesn't last. It's constantly changing. It's all right to think about it, but to react with an emotional um, difficulty makes life unpleasant. Although, the Buddha said, that dukkha exists and is the first noble truth, he never said that life has to be unpleasant. On the contrary. And this is one of the things which is the possibly the greatest misunderstanding of the Buddha's teaching. People often react to this first noble truth by saying, oh, I don't really like to hear a teaching where there's talk about this pain and grief and lamentation. I've got enough of it already. I'd like to have something a little you know, lighter and happier. It's a total misunderstanding. The minute we accept the fact that dukkha exists universally everywhere, we're free of it. We don't have to suffer from it. It just is. The suffering that we endure is because we resist it. We don't like it. We don't want it. We want to find a certain trigger, a certain skill to get out of it. And it's impossible. And so we have to go because we're trying something which can't be done. But the minute we see, all right, dukkha is it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional. But I don't have to sit here suffering about it. That moment, suffering becomes nothing but a universal experience, which individually does not have to impinge. It doesn't have to have any kind of effect on us. And this was a Buddha's great genius to teach that. Of course, as you can see, there are ways and means of finding inner happiness through the meditative absorptions, but also, as you know and can see, they don't last. They're impermanent. We can bring them back, but when you go home, how much time are you going to give for that? So, the insight into the fact that all suffering exists because this level of existence, no, I'll take that back, all levels of existence contain dissatisfaction. At that moment, it all floats away as if it was just an air bubble. It doesn't have any real heavy meaning anymore. We don't have to suffer. And every time we see something in ourselves that's impermanent, it reinforces the understanding of our very temporary nature, of our very temporary existence, and of our lack of substantiality, because it's all moving. 
So at the end of any meditation, whether it's jhana, one, two, or three, whether it is just a, um, a very disturbed one or a very um, concentrated one, look at the impermanence of it. The disturbance is gone, the concentration is gone, the jhana is gone. No matter what it was, it's all gone. Something else is now taking its place. And the second thing to do, and I've mentioned it already also, but I want to repeat it, is to find your pathway. Now, until we've become fully trained in our in the meditative path, it is sort of like a hit-or-miss affair. It's, um, we take potluck. That's not the way to meditate. It's, of course, a beginning, naturally. Everybody has to do hit-or-miss. But as we become more practiced, we become more skillful, and it is then the path that we take in our meditation. We know where to direct our mind. And I'd like to interject that right now. This is another misunderstanding. Most people think it's got to happen by itself. It will not. We've got to direct our mind. And these are the Buddha's instructions. Direct the mind from the first to the second to the third to the fourth to the fifth and so on. We direct our mind. We don't wait for potluck to direct it. And that's why the instructions are necessary. So at the end, first impermanent, second one, second thing before opening the eyes, the pathway. If the meditation was particularly bad, particularly disturbed, and um, anything happened that was not really um, concentrated. Look at that also and see whether you did anything differently this time so that it turned into such a disturbed or um, upset meditation period. Eat too much, eat too little, sleep too much, sleep too little, sit badly not watching the back or the legs, uh, think badly, whatever it may be, go back and see what could be the cause. If you find any kind of cause, you will, of course, in future eliminate it. That's common sense. By the same token, if it was a jhana or any good meditation state, find the cause. It can start way back when still sitting in one's room and thinking about something which was elevating, thinking about some dhamma. It may have had something to do with coming to the pillow and actually feeling loving kindness for oneself. Whatever the cause, sometimes the cause can be a physical one, sitting differently, putting one's back, one's head. There are many small triggers which help. The biggest one is, of course, determination to get rid of all those worldly ideas and uh, thoughts which are always impinging. So the two things should be done before opening the eyes, the impermanence and the cause for either the good or the bad meditation. Now, the 
last one of the fine material absorptions is of course the most profound because as we move on from one to eight they become finer and subtler and more profound and of course also a little more difficult to get to. Once having done it though it appears to be just very ordinary. It's a mansion that has all these rooms. Having unlocked the door, there's no reason why one can't enter into all of them. The uh, simile of the mansion with the rooms I have uh, stolen from Teresa de Villa, who mentions that in her descriptions of her, what she calls prayer. And her terminology is, of course, totally different from ours, but her experiences are identical. It's a very interesting fact that all mystics of all ages, of all persuasions, have done exactly the same thing. Some of them are more colorful and flowery in their language, are more able to express themselves in very beautiful terms, which is the case in the writings of Teresa de Avila, much more flowery and beautiful terms than I'm using. It's not part of um, the, uh, this tradition to express uh, it in the terms that she does because it is expressed in the way of the marriage to Christ, but it comes down to exactly the same thing. What she also does, of course, is be why it becomes very, very um, um, descriptive is she talks about her own experiences. And uh, that makes it very interesting, but also something that we are not want to do and not supposed to do. The um, last one, the fourth one, in the fine material absorptions, can be compared to maybe dropping down into a well or drowning in the ocean, being willing to give oneself up. It's a wholehearted commitment. Without the wholehearted commitment to the spiritual path, to the meditation practice, it's very difficult to do this. And it becomes a momentary letting go of personal identity. The observer, who was quite uh, present in the first three, in fact, it's the one that always says, gee, that was nice, um, and disturbs the whole proceedings, uh, this observer is in the fourth one very um, minute. So minute that one could imagine the observer not to be there but that is not true. The observer is there, but in a very fine and subtle um, presence. This dropping down into well, as you can imagine, if you want to use this analogy, has different stages. The well goes deeper, 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 deeper. And coming down, at the landing at the bottom, which is then the complete fourth absorption, shuts out all sound and doesn't hear anything. 
the Buddha once was uh, meditating at a river. And as he came out of his meditation, he saw hundreds and hundreds of ox carts that had been crossing the river. Now anyone who's ever been in the east knows the kind of noise that an ox cart makes. It's unbearable. Whether you meditate or not, it's just unbearable noise. And as he came out of his meditation, there was another wanderer, that's what other monks of other persuasions are often called, um, standing there and greeted the Buddha and said that uh, he was also a meditator and that he was very, uh, he himself was a very skillful meditator because he had meditated through a very bad storm with thunder and lightning and hadn't heard it. And the Buddha said, well, I've just come out of the meditative absorptions and see all these ox carts that have passed through the river and I didn't hear a single one of those. So they were telling each other their experiences. And uh, this applies to the fourth and the eighth absorption. The uh, fourth one is, when it is complete, it is without sound. However, as a well has different stages, the sound in the beginning is heard as if one is sitting under a glass dome. It is um, not impinging in its full uh, measure, but sort of in the distance, and it becomes less and less. Now, there, a word of caution, I've had this happen. I say this about the force in order to describe it, and then somebody actually gets into the force and then starts checking all the time. Am I hearing anything? (laughs) (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) This happened recently. So don't check anything. If you hear, it's good. If you don't hear, it's fine. The fourth one is a profound peacefulness, which is so profound that the mind cannot say this is peace. The mind only knows that it isn't concerned about anything. It's completely at rest. And afterwards, when one comes out of it, there's also that very, um, there's a, a recognition of the fact that during the time the me must have been absent and that that was such a profound, peaceful experience that it becomes clear that without the me, life would be much more peaceful. And at that time, it is possible that a very strong resolve arises to practice to the end where the me will finally give in and say, okay, I agree, I'm an illusion. And uh, because of that experience, this is possible. It's not necessary that this happens, but these are possibilities. I will give you the um, analogy for these four states of meditative absorption which can be found in the commentaries. It's described as a person who's wandering through the desert without any provisions and is extremely thirsty, parched, 
so to say, which would describe the state of meditation when the mind is going all over the place and one is parched for some peacefulness. And then, finally, after having wandered through the desert for quite a while, one sees in the distance a pond of water. So the person becomes quite excited. There is my relief. Now that's compared to the first jhana when the pleasant sensation arises which brings the mind to understand, hey, there's something else to this rather than just having pains in the knees and trying to figure out what my thoughts are about. The mind gets quite excited. This is something. And so this excitement is now in the mind, sees this pond in the distance. And then, of course, this person draws nearer to the pond and stands at the edge of the pond and gazes into the water which is compared to the second one. Happiness arises because the relief is at hand. But there's still excitement because the second jhana, the happiness one, has still an excited feeling about it. Happiness and the pleasant sensations are both experienced as if they were up here somewhere, which is only a manner of speaking. Obviously, they're not. But there is a certain kind of excitement connected with it because first one has finally found that there's something else to this meditation rather than you're sitting there and trying and also the relief is at hand. One is now there and there's this happiness arising from that. And then the person bends down to drink and as he bends down to drink he becomes very contented and very peaceful. He's got what he wanted. And that's the third one, the contentment, the peacefulness. And then he walks over to the nearest tree and lies down in the, ch- in the shade of the tree and rests. And that's the fourth one. Having got what one wanted, one can now be at peace. There's nothing else to be done. The fourth one has to be a natural progression. And in order to practice these jhanas, they need to be natural progressions. It happens not infrequently that people have an experience, a sudden experience, without having been taught, sometimes without having meditated, of one of the jhanic states. They become very excited about it and, of course, can't find out what it is sometimes become disturbed by it and want to repeat it but can't do that. This has to be a progression. It has to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then as one has done that, one learns to go eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And having learned that, one goes anywhere one wants. And that's called playing with the jhanas. Just jumping around wherever one wants to be that one becomes master of the jhanas. Getting in there when one wants, staying as long as one wants, going to any of them that one does want to go to, coming out when one wants, and understanding exactly what has happened. That's essential. However far one gets with them, 
every step on the way is a gain. It is very interesting that there is not a single mind that cannot do it. There are, of course, minds which have become so disturbed during the course of this life that they can't be explained to them. There are, of course, minds which may be affected through some defect. I can't say about them. I don't know. But what we call a normal mind, the Buddha said none of us are normal. We're all under under a very heavy illusion. But what we call normal, anything that we call normal, any mind can do it. It's a natural way for the mind to function. And it is the natural way for the mind to function, to get back to its source and not become absorbed and um, totally infiltrated by what the world is offering. Now, if that, what everybody has in their daily lives, if that were reality, Just think for a moment what's happening in your daily life. If all those thoughts were reality and were really what life is all about, did people 300 years ago think about those things? They didn't think about those things that we're thinking about at this time. That there are things that they thought about, which we are also thinking about, which have to do with our own inner reality with our own heart states, our own mind states, and they are important. So all this stuff that goes on in the mind, it really is only an, like a an movie set where the houses are made out of cardboard and you can only see the front of them. If you go around in the movie set to the back, it's all nothing, nothing there. The house is all just painted in front. And this is what's happening. And if we can release ourselves from that and are able to go to that source of being within, we will find that our life becomes far more meaningful and directional. And it has, we don't have to ask anybody, what am I supposed to be doing? We know. We have been become, we have become able to get in touch with the knower within. For that, we have to become calm. Without becoming calm, it's not possible. The knower is constantly disturbed. It's always having something to do. It's always out there trying to figure it out. So these meditative states give us that um, skill. They are a skill like any other. And any mind is able to do that because inwardly, if we really examine ourselves, we have that yearning for it and we have an understanding, an inner realization without even having been told that such a thing must be possible. 
I think everybody knows that there must be more to life than just trying to make a living. It can't be all there is to it. And it can't be all there is to it trying to just be able to keep up with one's duties and responsibilities and trying to keep up with the payments. I mean, it just can't be all there is to it. Everybody knows that. So we have it. Everybody has it. And that yearning within that we sometimes express by moving to the country, going on holiday, swimming in the ocean, this yearning within cannot be fulfilled through these outer conditions. It can be only fulfilled through this inner condition. And it's available to everyone. It's not something for spiritual geniuses. I can assure you. And it's also not something which is reserved for people who live in the forest. And it's also not reserved for somebody who has at least meditated 25 years already. These are all opinions which are being voiced. They are not correct uh, in their opinions because people want to do it. And given an opportunity, they can do it. Not all of it, not perfectly, but some of it. And as one does some of it, one has at least that foothold. One has put one's foot in the door, and one knows where the door is. And one knows that if one keeps a foot in the door, it's not going to slam shut again. So one has at least started. And that is probably the most important thing we can do at this time. You can ask some questions if you like. But they certainly help. <laughs> the the eight eight well sometimes only four are mentioned by the Buddha. Uh, only four jhanas are mentioned because the next four are, are considered to be the extension of the first four. I'll talk about the other four tonight, okay? And uh, they uh, certainly are the pathway that the Buddha took himself, and everything preceding the four states of enlightenment. Yes. And the other is. So that should be some determination of where we might get. Well, and, and the other is, how does the whole idea of grace fit in in the Buddhist context? Because you know we don't know where our karma is, so we don't know exactly where we'll get our foot in the door if we will. Or at least I think that way. <laughs> that, that sounds so far too confusing, part. doesn't it? No. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? Okay. Karma, o monks, I declare, is intention. That's all it is, intention. The result of intention is vipaka. So you've got intention, and from your intention, you get resultants. Okay. Now your intention was to come here and sit there on that little pillow. Okay. Now you get resultants. You are the master of your destiny within the realm of your abilities and possibilities. And the more good intentions you have, the more good resultants you get, the more openings you get. 
See, your karma has brought you right there. But, but you're saying this Vipaka, this past, isn't, isn't that a, something you got to confuse? you got to deal with, you know, because of your... you got to deal with the past. Well, How are you going to do that? <laughs> well, just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to, you know, step into these genres. I have to put the effort there, but, but you're saying, what about the ability? You said you come with your abilities or your background or your talents. Yes. You come with whatever abilities you bring to it, and as you come often and do it more and more, eventually you'll do it can't be helped. You have to do it, because what else would you be doing? <laughs> yes? Well, we've got good food, we've got good air, we've got quiet place, we've got, what else do you need? Ah, the forest is full of sounds. Sound to the, to the one who does Anapanasati, it says, is like, like a thorn. But that's for the unskilled one. How are you going to el- eliminate sound out of this world? The world has sound as its own uh, basis. <coughs> I mean, the forest is full of sound. So the, uh, there's no way you can get away from it. In fact, the forest is sometimes much noisier than this. I have been in the forest for months on end, and uh, I often retreated inside the house rather than sitting outside because it's much quieter inside than was outside. Yeah, that's what it says, I mean says to the Anapanasati meditator, sound is a thorn. But I mean, how are you going to get out of sound? No way. Uh, one of the things one has to eventually do is find one's own way. <laughs> yes, what else? Yes. Yes. Uh, praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, and happiness and unhappiness. Yes. Yes. Certainly. <laughs> the first one is the noble truth of dukkha. Dukkha is spelled D-U-K-K-H-A. And it really doesn't pay to translate it because it's a long rigmarole, Right? Okay. Second noble truth is that there's only one cause for dukkha, and that's craving. The third noble truth is the noble truth of the liberation from dukkha, which is called nibbana. And the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. The noble eightfold path, which is the pathway to take to come to nibbana. Yes. Uh, I'm a little confused right now. You talk about the jhanas, meditation, absorption, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and it's clear that there's more to life than making a living. 
did you get off the pillow? How did you get jhanas that you have experience to actualize yourself in everyday life? I think I've given quite a long talk on that already. You mean... <laughs> Well, in the first instance, the five factors of the first jhana counteract the five hindrances. They cut them down to the point where they're not so obstructive anymore and thereby give us a little more freedom in our inner being. We have less sensual desire, less ill will, less loss and torpor, less restlessness and worry, and less skeptical doubt, which are the five hindrances in their proper sequential order. So that's the first instance. The second thing is that I remember I said that the jhanas have a residue. We know we've got a home for the mind. So these things are all productive towards more peacefulness. And they also have, as I have explained today and will explain again tonight, inbuilt inside possibilities. And as we gain insight, our life becomes smooth. Without insight, the path does not exist. We have only two things in meditation, calm and insight. Well, the jhanas are only a means. They are not the goal. The goal is insight. And insights can arise even without meditation. Insights can arise from contemplation. Insights can arise from great dukkha. Great dukkha is our best teacher. Uh, insights can arise under many circumstances, in a flash, Meditation is, of course, the means for getting the mind calm, but it does not mean that one can't have any insights without meditation, and it doesn't mean that one can't have any insights without the jhanas. Nothing of the sort. I'm showing a pathway which brings almost immediate results and also brings people to a point of inner being, which is a very desirable way of being and very urgently needed in this world of ours, which is full of stress and strain, but it doesn't mean that one can't gain insight without the jhanas. One can, and whether they can be complete or full is a matter of opinion. They are certainly, they can be on the way there without a doubt. And some people, and this is very common, 
have to gain insight first before they can become calm. Their minds are just too agitated. And other people have to become calm first before they can gain any insight. And some people don't even meditate. <laughs> yes. No, 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 don't rerun the preview. That's getting boring. Um, <laughs> what you need to do is stay on each, um, uh, each stage of this for at least 10 to 15 minutes. And if the mind falls off it, like of the first one, uh, bring it back to the first one. Again and again, until you've got a solid 10 to 15 minute uh, base. And then you've got the movie. And then the next one, okay? Yeah, running through that uh, has to do with impatience. It's an impatience. I want to get to the end of it. I know all this already. Come on, what's next? You know, it's not uncommon. So don't let that uh, impatience take over, okay? Yes. Uh, what, what? Trances. Trances. Trances, oh yes. Well, yeah, that's uh, happened because um, the Pali Canon, the words of the Buddha, were translated for the first time into English about a hundred years ago by Professor uh, Rice Davis and his wife. And uh, he was an Englishman, and she was English, and uh, he was one of the administrators of the British colonial system in India. And uh, he found these uh, Pali writings, and he was also a very uh, profound scholar and got very interested. He was, I think both of them were Church of England, most likely, uh, had, were totally disinterested in Buddhism as a practice or as a religion, but he was a scholar and so was she. And so they did a uh, yeoman service uh, to us by the very first translation of the whole of the Pali Canon, which was then published by the Pali Text Society in England. And the Pali Text Society just had its 100th um, anniversary. Now, those people, both of them, him and her, and she did more, I think, of the work than he did because he died, um, didn't know what meditation was. And they translated the meditative absorptions as trance. And uh, But meanwhile, of course, people like Nanatiloka and Nanaponika brought out Buddhist dictionaries where they are properly translated. And so the word trans does appear in the old writings of the Pali Text Society. And um, not all of these old texts have been newly printed and newly translated yet. We've still got a lot of that old stuff around. And that's probably where that comes from. Anything else? Mainly how to do it. Not why not to do it, but why to do it. 